Welcome to Living Wisely, Living Well, Timeless Wisdom to Enrich Every Day with Asha Nayaswamy, one of the spiritual directors of Ananda Palo Alto and a founding member of Ananda Worldwide. If you enjoy this content and are inspired by the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda and his disciple Swami Kriyananda, find Asha on YouTube, Facebook, all podcast directories, and her website, ashajoy.org. Living Wisely, Living Well, August 24. Today, tell yourself, I'm going to see life in a new way. When I look at a tree, I will ask myself, what message has it for me from God? If the trunk is straight, I'll think, that is how I shall keep my spine firmly upright. If the tree is many-branched, I'll ask myself, in what new directions of thought and action can I branch out today? If the leaves are luxurious, I'll think, let my own life flourish similarly. And if the tree is bare, let me think, negatively perhaps at first, I don't want my life to be barren, but then positively, I too must withdraw sometimes from outer involvement to return with renewed vigor in confronting life's challenge. Everything around you can teach and inspire you if you animate your gaze with a questing mind. I love that last phrase, isn't it? If you animate your gaze with a questing mind. You know, some people's gaze, it's very simple. The opposite of that is your gaze is inanimate, which means that you're not giving life to anything. You're just being a passive observer without participating. And then the other half of that is the questing mind. The, the truth seeker's mind. The first step on the spiritual path is to be a truth seeker. I was interested in one of our... Uh, our middle school teacher is a very... Well, he's exceedingly talented at what he does with, with sixth through eighth graders. And we are inspiring the children to high ideals, but we're not dogmatizing them in any particular spiritual path. We're not a parochial school. Even though the school is run by Ananda and all this, most of the staff are Ananda, devotees. It's not a parochial school. It's a, it's a truth-seeking school. And there was a very strong-minded girl in the school who um, kept insisting that she was an atheist. And the teacher, being wise, instead of confronting her on the issue, despite the fact that we pray and meditate in the school, but it's done in such a way that the children don't feel oppressed by it. But rather than confronting her directly, he, he waited He waited until the right moment and then said quite simply, you know, he said, when I talk to you and I listen to you, what I think you actually are is a truth seeker. And because she has a questing mind and she was not content to take other people's answers for things, so she was throwing herself into the camp of being an atheist because she didn't want to take anybody's word for it as to what uh, the nature of life was. But to draw a conclusion merely in reaction to what you don't like um, is not the same as actually looking for truth. It's just being reactive. And being reactive is, as, um, is just the same as being dogmatic because one is not allowing oneself to actually seek what the true answer was. And fortunately, he really got her attention. And later on, um, we, we both he- heard her comment when sort of asked or when it was appropriate that she was a truth seeker. Now think about that just from the point of view of education. At the age of 12, instead of becoming dogmatically fixed on things because you don't like something you heard, to be committed even to as a self-definition 
that what I want is the truth of the matter. It just puts you in a wholly different place. And so Swami's saying to us that we can, if, we're, if we have a questing mind, if we're actually interested in what's true, then, it's, then it, it automatically leads to an animated gaze because we, we don't take anything at face value, but yet we're not rebelling against things. We're just extremely interested. In the Festival of Light, which is this ritual that, we, that Swami created in the early 80s, mid-80s, late 80s, and uh, has formed the sort of um, the heart of our Sunday morning worship. Um, we, it, the Festival of Light includes this little allegory about a little bird and the, the day and the night of that little bird representing the eons of time that the soul goes on its journey from when we're first um, expressed from Satchitananda into manifestation to when we finally realize our oneness with Satchitananda and come back. Satchitananda is the Sanskrit word translated as God, but infinitely more effective than the word God. It means ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new bliss. And that is the final, infinite, unifying reality of, of existence. Every sentient being is manifested from that reality, and everything, just like the river seeking the sea, will be drawn back into it. And in the story, this allegorical story of the little bird, it goes, it goes on this journey, and the first, it has four stages, the journey. The first stage is the mission. It's sent out from the divine to be fruitful and to multiply, multiply and to share what we learn with others. And the Spirit says, because you are a part of all that is, just as we have shared with you, you must share with all, because we are a part, because you are a part of all that is. However, the bird, in flight for the first time, begins to really enjoy its own power, the sense of power, and it begins to think, how foolish I would be to share my strength with anyone. What else is wisdom if not to take what is mine for myself? And so the first young experience of the bird is the pleasure of its own power. So it revolts against the mission. So the second stage is the revolt. I'm revolting against this. I'm in rebellion. You've told me this is the meaning of life. I say, no, it's not. And then lots of bad things happen to the bird. Repeatedly, it loses everything it has. Repeatedly, it becomes anxious and afraid in the midst of storms. Repeatedly, it gets swept under by the tides of life. Until finally, the bird begins to wonder if maybe I have some of this wrong. Instead of declaring what is true, the bird begins to inquire as to what is true. This is the transition that I would call the difference between saying, why did you do this to me, God? To, why did you do this to me, God? Same question, but you can see the tone is one is one of fury and one is genuine inquiry, perhaps I don't know. So that's the third stage, which is called the quest. And when we're in the quest, we try to understand the meaning of things. And then the fourth stage Swamiji calls it the redemption, but it's when we return, but return with experience and wisdom to the understanding that I am one with all there is, and I must share with all whatever I receive. I'm redeemed from my ignorance and can take my, my, true, my true role, my, my designated role in creation, which is a sense of unity, generosity, and service. But it's the, it's the choice made from experience rather than 
the innocence of, of immaturity. The innocence of wisdom is different than the innocence of immaturity. Swami was always fond of telling a joke. A little five-year-old boy said to a little five-year-old girl, are you a virgin? And she said, not yet. Meaning she didn't even have enough knowledge. I mean, the joke meaning she didn't have enough knowledge to know. So we can be innocent, but not because we're truly transcendent. It's just that we haven't been tested yet. We just don't know yet. So Swami's emphasis here in the questing mind once we begin to go on a quest for truth, absolutely everything will answer us. And life can become absolutely fascinating. You know, why did that happen? And I don't mean a sort of self-preoccupied, why did that happen? I went out the door and I tripped a little bit on the stair, and why did that happen? What could that have meant? You know, we can make ourselves crazy with that. So we need to also be in an elevated flow where we're really trying to see what, what God and life and the universe, you don't even have to believe in God. You can take this just simply as nature. What is nature trying to tell me? When I was writing the book, The Light Bearer, which is the big volume effort of my life, I will hold it up on the screen, which I haven't in a long time, which is the, life's, uh, the life history of Swami Kriyananda building Ananda, which is what I was part of, 45 years. I was in very strict seclusion when I was writing that book. And one of the places I was in seclusion... It was in the spring, and I there was about three acres of land, so I could just stay on the property. When, when you get that sensitive, at least I get that sensitive when I'm working or meditating in, in something, I don't really want to leave my own aura. So the, the property that was fenced in just felt like it was still my own aura. Every so often I try to step out of it into this completely uninhabited country road, but it's, it, I felt vulnerable, so I would stay on the land. So I actually just made this little, I, I beat a little trail with my feet around and around like this. And I was living very close to nature, even though the house I was in was quite substantial. I was living very close to nature, and when, whenever I've had the opportunity to, opportunity to do that, which was for the first 16 years of my life with Ananda, but not for the last 30, um, I always think I always fall back into what I believe to be my own previous incarnation with the Native Americans, where the the whole Indian, American Indian, bhav way of life attunement to God just it, it sort of comes back to me. But it's very difficult to do in our modern society because the Indians lived in the natural world, and so their understanding of the creatures and the fauna and the stars and the landmarks. It wasn't something that they would sort of drop in and try to feel. It was just as natural to them as breathing. Here's a very interesting story. A woman told me she was a school teacher on an American Indian reservation in, in modern times, not a long time ago. And she said as one of the assignments, the little children, seven, eight, ten years old, she had them draw self-portraits she said all of the American Indian children drew themselves on a full piece of paper, relatively small, and their self-portrait included the landscape in which they lived. And whereas if you ask most uh, children who are not raised in that tradition to draw a self-portrait, their self-portrait will fill the page. But the American Indian children just saw themselves as part of the mesa, part of the mountain, part of the desert. Isn't that fascinating? Because that was their self-definition. And there's a tremendous amount that we can learn from that. In my little sojourn of a few months out there, all, all the animals 
I just began, I began to feel their reality and their unique um, contribution, uh, the, the unique part of the spirit that they carried. And you can, you can just learn so much that way. And carrying it back into my life, you know, where, where I'm much more in civilization, it's, a, it's a, a matter just exactly of what Swami says, animating your gaze by a questing mind. I was walking through a city park right near here where I've actually walked many times before. And interestingly, for some reason, I never noticed, and I believe it's always been this way, there's this huge, I believe it's a eucalyptus tree, a eucalyptus tree where if I put my arms around it, my full, full stretch extension of my arms, I don't think I could go halfway around the tree. I could maybe go a third. So it would take three of me to go around the trunk. And it's multiple stories high, like maybe four stories high. It's just in the middle of a park. Uh, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of activity around it. But I realized looking at it, and why did I never notice that the trunk is burned? It looked like that, and it must have been a long time ago because I've lived here for 30 years and I have no recollection of there being a fire anywhere near it. But the, there, it's black, maybe up about as high as eight feet. The tree is perfectly healthy, but it's still black. I stood there and thought for a long time, you know, what would it take to blacken that trunk? And yet, look, the tree just carries it. It just carries the black without, without the slightest apparent hesitation, embarrassment, weakening, anything. It's just something that this tree has been through. And of course, then I thought of my own life and the many somethings I've been through and the scars that I bear, whether they show or don't show. And I ask myself, you know, am I as straight and strong and as tall as that tree and as capable of carrying that black mark as that tree is carrying? You see how fascinating? It would be just a little walk through the park that I've taken probably hundreds of times. All of a sudden, when the mind is open, the gaze is animated, a whole new reality, a new relationship, new respect, new self-understanding. It's always there for us. It's just a question of whether we open ourselves to receive it. Today, tell yourself, I'm going to see life in a new way. When I look at a tree, I will ask myself, what message has it from God? If the trunk is straight, I'll think that is how I shall keep my spine firmly upright. If the tree is many-branched, I'll ask myself, in what new directions of thought and action can I branch out today? If the leaves are luxurious, I'll think, let my own life flourish similarly. And if the tree is bare, let me think, negatively perhaps at first, I don't want my life to be barren. But then, the same image taken positively, I too must withdraw sometimes from outer involvement to return with renewed vigor in confronting life's challenges. Everything around you can teach and inspire you if you animate your gaze with a questing mind. Joy to you, my friends. Our work is made possible by inspired listeners, so if you feel to support Asha, you can make a one-time donation, or for unique members-only content, subscribe through Patreon. Blessings and thank you.